once we have no understanding of the technology that we're using, I think that can lead to bad places because again, it's it's another sense of distance between ourselves and the world that we're interacting with. It's another stage further away that we are from that. And I think that distance is, uh, yeah, it can, can kind of has a, has a certain dehumanizing effect. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you are listening to the Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture. This week, my guest is Robin Entz, a comedian, actor, and writer known for presenting the BBC radio show The Infinite Monkey Cage with physicist Brian Cox, his appearances alongside Ricky Gervais, and his stand-up comedy career. In this episode, we explore topics from Robin's latest book, The Importance of Being Interested, Adventures in Scientific Curiosity, which takes readers on a tour through Robin's scientific journey, his interviews with guests, and why he thinks it's so important that we remain interested in science, despite the commonly held view that science is some distant and difficult subject reserved only for academics. Naturally, our conversation also explores the role of technology and how it's related to our relationship with science. So without farther ado, let's just go ahead and get into it. Everyone, please welcome to the Feedback Loop, Robin Ince. So I think a great starting point, especially with authors, um, is exploring the motivation for dedicating so much of your soul time and energy into writing a book i know it's a very daunting process so you recently came out with you know uh, the importance of being interested adventures in scientific curiosity what motivated you to give so much of yourself to that work well do you know what? nearly every single time it is an alibi for me to immerse myself in that world so nearly everything i certainly in the last 15 years every stand-up show i do every book that i do every podcast i create is always in the direction of something that i go i want to know more about that and if you can also pretend that it's work that means i mean because I, I got asked the other day someone said do you have any hobbies and i said no th- this is my hobby as well this is everything and so you know, I, I was, I mean, I was driven by real zeal as well, but it's, it's one that I've been driven by for a long time to tell people not to be scared about approaching science and not understanding science and that, you know, understanding it is not the important part. It's making sure that you don't shy away from it because you'll always pick up something. And uh, and then once I started, I mean, I was lucky because, you know, I started writing it just as lockdown began. And so I needed a big project because I would have gone quite mad otherwise. And I need as many things as possible. And then suddenly that changed the book because it turned out that everyone that I wanted to speak to, and I'd, originally there, was, there weren't going to be lots of other voices in there. But one day I suddenly thought, oh, I've got a question about the International Space Station. And I am in a fortunate position, very fortunate position to ever go, oh, yeah, and I've, I've got the phone number of an astronaut. And, and so I got in contact with Chris Hadfield, the Canadian astronaut, and uh, I said, oh, have you got half an hour? Just to, I want to ask you about these things. And then suddenly I had another question the next day, and I realised it was an anthropologist that I had a phone number for. And then... 
I suddenly, you know, I was, and there were people I'd never met before. A lot of them were people I'd met in the past and doing event stuff. And then suddenly I was like, Jane Goodall, this is my opportunity. This is my alibi to speak to someone who is an enormously inspirational figure. Um, And then fortunately, because I know someone who looked after a gorilla for a while, one thing leads to another. And, uh, and she had just enough details that got me one step away from Jane Goodall and then to Jane Goodall. So, you know, I mean, that's what drives me on is I, you know, writing a book like this, which was a very difficult book to write in one way because it's the longest edit I've ever done. I uh, I think the book itself probably took two months to write the first draft, which was about 100,000 words over what the publisher were expecting. So it's about 220,000 words, which are much, uh, I think it's now 130,000 words. But the editing process took a year because I every time I'd edit and I'd think, and I'd look at the document, I'd go, look, I've taken out 20,000 words and I'd go, it's 30,000 words more, but I, I only added a full stop. I only added a pronoun. I only added an adjective and yet every single time. So because I just, and it's what my shows are like, my live shows. I, I just want to tell people everything. I, I, I want every single person to leave with something that will delight them or change the way they see the sky. Yeah, you mentioned Jane Goodall there, which I love because she's a very good representation of somebody who can do amazing work in a field that requires a high level of expertise, who doesn't necessarily have the appropriate background. Why do you think people are afraid of that journey that Jane represents? And that honestly, I think you represent in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, I think the first people like, you know, the power structures as they are, as we know, in so many different ways, you know, I mean, I mean, we see very clearly so frequently over sex and gender issues and race issues. And that, but, they, they, you know, in academia, there is a there is a way to do things. And, and we like to have even in these places that are meant to be adventurous people like a framework. So as we know, you know, when when Jane Goodall came back from Gombe and she had these incredible revelations about the behavior of chimpanzees, the first things would say that you've done it wrong. You know, and I think we've all had bad teachers as well as having good teachers. You would have that bad teacher who you might have created something wonderful, exciting or strange, but there was, their first reaction would be you've done it wrongly as opposed to, oh, well, you've made something fantastic. But it's not quite what I was after. And I think that was so all of those restrictions and those frameworks are in every single world. And of course, for Jane Goodall as well, uh, you know, it can't be taken out of, of, uh, of the equation that, you know, being a woman. And as you said, also being someone who did not officially have any of the, the degrees, the professorships, etc. Then it, it shows that it's something we always have to be very wary of. Yeah, and then you took a bit of a unique approach as well, right? Pairing comedy with science, which I think typically people think of like the academic world and comedy as uh, a bad pairing. Um, why was that something that you wanted to do? And why do you think the comedy aspect is so important to that? Well, I mean, I think one of the, again, it was, I wanted to understand things more. And if you have to write a joke about something you have to understand it to a reasonable level so you know my first science jokes would have a 27 minute setup and uh, a 12 second punchline because i would have to give all this different information uh, about you know subatomic particles or whatever it might be uh, and then you begin to find the shortcuts and then the more that you begin to at least if not understand at least have some knowledge of so that that was part of it and it was just and also stand up it's a line I've said many times that George Carlin, you know, the great stand-up George Carlin said, he said, stand-up is a very low art, but it is a very potent art. And I thought that is the thing is sometimes I find it sad when I see so many stand-ups doing stuff that is either just 
nasty, dismissive of people. It's kind of, it's very negative stand-up or it's stand-up about absolutely nothing, but not in the good absolutely nothing way. There are also great comedians who do stuff about absolutely nothing. Um, and I thought, well, this is a great way of getting people excited by ideas as well. And it was really interesting th because so many times people have said, you know, but, but what can you, what can you talk about and stand up about you do using science? I said, well, well, everything in the known universe and some conjecture uh, about the unknown possibilities of the universe as well. So it turns out there's quite a lot there. Um, and, and so it really was that I, 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 again, another line of often used is talking about Carl Sagan when he was asked about why he was a science popularizer, why he wanted to do that. And he said that thing, he said, when you're in love, you want to tell the whole world. And I think that's the thing is when I find a beautiful idea, when I see a wonderful artist, when I hear a new band, whatever it might be, I always want to go, other people must love this too. You, know, you, you you don't want the beautiful ideas just to 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 be lost to rot away unobserved and uh and so that was a real drive as well and it does it genuinely it's my the the best part of every day is when i get a chance to kind of share those ideas or write about those ideas and find out more about those ideas and i think the more that i accepted the fact that i was very ignorant yeah, I mean i think this is one of the things that keeps people away from science is once you enter a world like that there will be times you say things that are wrong, that are not like the objective world of kind of, you know, the arts where your reaction, however wrong it may seem, you can say, but that's my reaction to that. Now, of course, in, in science, it, it, sometimes there are points where they go, this really is not our understanding of a supermassive black hole. This is really not the way that we view this particular idea within epigenetics, whatever it might be. And then once you get comfortable with the amount that you don't know, well, not comfortable, comfortable is the wrong word. But once you just go, this is this is the way things are. And I'm going to fight as much, you know, as, as I mentioned in the book, the problem is if you have a you keep your mind curious every single day, you know, less than you did the day before, because every single day you find a load of new things out and you go oh, brilliant. Now the box of things that I don't know is smaller. But then you go, oh, hang on a minute. I've just found out I'd got the dimensions of the box wrong. It turns out the box of things I don't know is much bigger than it was yesterday. And so you can see why that's pe why people like dogmatism and why people like bigotry and why people like things being because because doubt is a very very hard thing to i mean you know that sense of you must hold on to your truths with a very very light grasp and unfortunately we have so many people who they define themselves through a selection of certainties and it becomes so much of their personality that to lose that certainty means they feel that they are losing part of themselves so the cognitive dissonance that we all have to a different level, you know, in some people we can just see it's, you know, it, it, it's pulsing energetically all the time. Yeah. Why do you think we're so averse to just saying, I don't know, like, it seems like the door or it seems like I should say the password or the key to the door of mystery and wonder and, and, and enjoyment in a lot of ways. But it feels like one of the worst things people want to do these days on a public forum, on the Internet. Uh, on a stage is just say I don't know it's a beautiful thing isn't it when you see sometimes someone just the pause that someone might give before offering their opinion the, that sense of I mean when I when I was going around going to lots of bookshops and talking about this book one of the things that happened on three different occasions and I thought this is ridiculous on three different occasions someone came up to me at the end of the event and said thank you very much for saying that you didn't know and I thought what an odd thing that that is now actually seen as something that is almost remarkable because quite often when I do events, I might get asked very scientifically specific questions. And 
more often than not, you know, I would might be able to give some kind of answer, but very often I'll go, I'm not the person who can answer this. And this is a fascinating question. And I hope on most occasions I've been able to say, these are the people that you want to go and look at. And these are the YouTube channels that you'll find useful. And this is the woman who's done this incredible research, go there. But I don't know. And so I found that really interesting that to, and, and I know that when I do shows with Brian Cox as well, when we do these kind of big, big theatres and arenas and stuff, there will be such excitement when we're doing a Q&A and I say, what about that, Brian? And he goes, oh, I don't really know. And the audience will go, oh, thank heavens. You know, they expect me not to know. I'm just a jumpy, uppy, downy person, you know, who, who's trying to grab onto as many. Ideas. But with him, they've seen him speak with such authority about the nature of the universe to find out there is even a small, you know, little tiny little vacuum in his uh, his huge uh, tableau of knowledge is uh, it's, they, they, they feel a relief. Yeah, do you think the uh, that things are changing or have changed in this regard because of things like technology where you're kind of attacked for not knowing? I mean, so many people live their lives now in the digital space, and it feels like a lot of people are, you know, not to be too cynical about it, but a lot of people are kind of waiting to catch somebody to have a gotcha, to, to prove somebody wrong or to, um, you know, show how intelligent they are by putting somebody else down. Do you think that like the social media world and technology is kind of exacerbating this uh, accessibility to science? I think it can, you know, I think it really is. It's, it's two extremes. I, I think I've never known a time, certainly in my life, where so many people have been excited and open-minded uh, about ideas of the universe, philosophical ideas as well. But at the same time, there is an enormous number of people who have high platforms, and will constantly punch down at people that's what they want to do and we have a lot of people who stand in judgment but take no action in terms of actually doing anything themselves as we all know the 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 best thing to do in the social media world is to offer your judgment on everyone else while doing nothing yourself because if you do anything there will be and um so I think in one way, we're in, 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 these are fantastic times for the speed of good ideas traveling. These are very dangerous times, as we saw during COVID, during the pandemic, as we see with climate change. Of Unfortunately, there are those people who would have always been like this, but now they're just a different speed of travel, um, will pick on one thing that they'll find, and they, they now believe they're an expert. And it's very, very hard, because if you are genuinely trying to argue with someone, uh, and they will give you a fact or a figure that you would now need to go away and check. But that's not the way these things work. By the time you've come back and you've checked that everything they've told you is actually wrong based on a false understanding of papers, whatever it might be, they've gone away and the impression has been made. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, there are moments of extreme optimism and moments of extreme pessimism. I think we have to, you know, critical thinking is, is the biggest problem because so many people do not understand how to, you know, whether it's look at a scientific paper, whether it's to understand why someone has the point of view that they have, who's financing them, why they are interested in this area the first time. We, we don't have that armory. Um, and, but I, but at the same time, I don't think it's a worse time. I think these things have always existed. But because it travels at the speed it does, and because we also we now hear all those people, whatever your political opinions, whatever your if you go into various different social media groups, you will just hear all of those things that you never heard before. But they were all being said. 
it's just now they're being communicated to more people. But it, I mean, sometimes it worries me because I think, you know, sometimes what social media, it reminds me of a, of a line that I think I put in the book, which was, uh, I forget which friend of mine it was, who said, he said, the thing about the astronauts, the Apollo astronauts, is uh, going to the moon didn't change them. It gave them permission to be who they really were, which I think is a very interesting kind of point. And I think that can be the same with the way that we see social media and extremism, etc., which is a lot of these things have not really, these are not people who were going to necessarily be kind and empathetic people, but you have given them a, a, an extra bit of permission to be, you know, what we saw in the UK with Brexit, and I think what was seen in the US with, uh, with Trump as well, was that there were an increasing number of people being given permission to say sometimes quite extreme things, uh, again, on kind of issues of race and gender, etc. Um, because suddenly they got that stamp, that seal. I mean, when, when Brexit happened in the UK, there was uh, a friend of mine who uh, two generations back, his family came from India. So, you know, he's, he's uh, and uh, he had four different people come up to him in the weekend that we, we left Europe saying, what are you still doing here? And he'd never had that before. And that was, you know, this is, that was, those people felt they'd been given permission to be brutal. Do you, do you think that, I guess, suppression of, of that side of people comes from the fact that, in a way, science feels like a luxury? I think somewhere in the book you mentioned, you know, what's the point of wisdom without profit, basically? And it's like in this day and age where we do have a situation where a lot of people aren't financially well off, where the systems of inequality are quite tilted, um, it feels in some ways maybe that, you know, sitting around and reading a book is... A bit of a luxury that a lot of people just simply can't afford well i mean a lot of the this is the culture war stuff as well you know that which we see which is why not look towards a, a scientific endeavor which has cost a few billion and put all the blame on them or look towards single mothers or whatever it might be as opposed to looking at a whole system where the richest people in the world everything is skewered towards them you know the old line which is it's uh, uh capitalism for the poor and socialism for the rich you know this is that they, they all those and and so i think a lot of those distraction techniques work very very effectively um in demonizing people who are really not the the big problem um and i think also it's interesting when you talk about that kind of that the suppression i think that's another problem that we have as human beings in in uh and i, I notice it a great deal in particular i think in in england um i notice it which is people have such a disparity between who they think they're allowed to be publicly and who they might be inside and i think that for instance is one of the things that leads to conspiracy theorists i remember being asked by someone at an event i did you know how do we persuade people the earth isn't flat and i said by then it might be too late I know there are people who've kind of come back for that, but it's once you have made such an incredible leap to something which dismisses an enormous body of knowledge and which is testable pretty much in your own back garden, this is not as if you need a big machine to test these things, then you realise, well, it's too late then, but that probably started from some form of alienation. Uh, a lot of that stuff, I think, starts from a point where because you're keeping everything that you might be within by the time it really comes out, it comes out in a big explosion of what ultimately appears to be, you know, counter-instinctual, anti-evidence-based madness, which gives you a new group of people to be part of. So, yeah, I mean, I think that suppression, sorry, that wasn't your question, I know, but I, could you mention suppression? I kind of yeah. find that, I, I do realise how much that plays a part in, in a lot of the conspiracy thinking that goes on. Well, one 
thing that makes me think of specifically is like cynicism versus skepticism. How do you keep yourself a skeptic rather than a cynic? It's interesting because I've definitely been a cynic and I, I used to do a lot more kind of stand up that was quite angry. It was still ridiculous angry, but it was kind of, um, and uh, I mean, the, the, it might sound like a cliche, but one of the things is I think uh, having a, 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 a when, when, when my son was born, I think, you know, you do have, as you start to take a journey with a child, I think that can reopen your eyes in certain ways and the way that the, their techniques of, of understanding the world. I think also because I ultimately, I, I have, you know, empathy is something which in fact sometimes almost entirely just disables me because I, I find it very, I really do want people to be happy. I really, really, uh, it, it, you know, almost pathetically, I worry all the time about people's happiness. And I worry like with, with the skepticism versus cynicism, when I see really good skeptics groups, like I mentioned the Merseyside skeptics in, in, in the book, they are driven by understanding why people are drawn to sometimes very bad decisions based on pseudoscience, pseudo-medicine, things that are genuinely dangerous to those people. They want to understand how that happens. They don't just want to go, oh, you're an idiot, because it's like, you know, with things like uh, some scientists, I'm fascinated by ghosts. I, I don't believe ghosts as we see them in fiction exist, but of course ghosts are real inside human minds. That definitely is where they exist. And um, and what I find, if you talk to some scientists and you talk about ghosts, they'll just go, well, it breaks the second law of thermodynamics, so they don't exist, that's that. And that's over and done with. But that misses out the really fascinating story, which is why do people believe in them? And what is it about different cultures? And, all, and that is a very, very interesting place, not whether ghosts exist or not. And I think very often that's where the interest is, is trying to understand how human minds get to where they get to. So I think that that fascinating. Again, over time, I look back at some of the stuff that I've done about religion in the past and things like that. And I have I've certainly in the last 15 years, I've seen an increasingly you know, a rapid change in the way that I try and view you know my, my general rule is uh, I'm not that worried about what people believe in but I am worried about the actions it might make them commit so you know with things like religion I um I have lots of friends who look some of them quite high up in, in in the church and things like that all of them are compassionate interesting people uh who happen to also have a god somewhere in their mind and uh, and in their life and I have no desire to persuade them that that does not exist but those people who have found a dogma, it doesn't just have to be religion, of course. There are political dogmas, there are all manner of dogmas, which will mean people believe that they have their superiority and therefore can commit atrocious acts to the underlings, to the lesser people. That's, that, so to me, actions became more and more important. So I think that, that has helped in terms of my you know, cynicism versus scepticism, is to try not to just discount someone for their opinions. And I know that I've done that in the past, and I haven't journeyed far enough to understand how they've got there. And some people it is, they, they're cruel, and some people really do lack empathy it's, it's an interesting thing like consciousness is an interesting thing to see there are different levels inside different human beings do you think curiosity is uh, a path to i guess empathy and compassion then is it is it a way to kind of kill your ego to constantly discover how ignorant you are 
Oh, I've definitely not killed my ego. I'd, I'd have cancelled <laughs> my tour. Uh, but I think it does. Yeah, I think it really is. I think if you keep reading, if you keep, you know, it's an interesting thing. Some of the kind of pseudoscience people, some of the kind of, uh, you know, they'll sometimes talk about, oh, yeah, you've got to keep an open mind. But very rarely do they have an open mind. The ones who are really committed, to, what they've done is they've opened their minds. They've kind of put some new idea in there, which entirely runs counter to evidence. And then they've kind of put epoxy glue around their skull and sealed it shut. And so they have not got an open mind. You know, this is the illusion we see with some of the people who've really monetized conspiracy thinking is they pretend that they've opened their mind when in fact they've just derailed it and then placed it in a very specific direction. So well, I think that bit where you keep your curiosity going and you keep, you know, it's, it's that thing, one of my favorite quotes. In fact, it's not in the book. I was, I was interviewing, oh man, what's his name? Oh, it's terrible. He, he, he created Lemony Snicket. Uh, the, the author did, I'm so, I can't believe I've forgotten his name, but it's, uh, I'm very tired. And um, he said this wonderful thing. So one of the reasons I was glad to be brought up Jewish was uh, you're allowed to answer a question with a question. And I thought that is great because that again is, is a lot. It's something I would have probably explored more in the book, a little bit, but that thing which going, if we are trying to get to answers, to ultimate answers, then we will fail. If every single time, if we go, do you know what? I'm on a journey to new new questions because a new question often comes from a new place of understanding. So you have moved on. It's not just you, you're still stuck in the same place at question time. It means you've moved another pace forward and a bunch of new questions have grown out at that point. And then you pluck some of those questions and some of those questions you get answers to. And as those answers blossom, you go, oh, and now the questions come as well. And, and that is... Uh, to me, that's a very, very exciting thing to live in a in a universe that is has no definite meaning, and <laughs> where each new question and each new answer could possibly change any, uh, you know, transitory meaning that we might have held on to. Um, that's that's a really cool place to be. I, I laughed there specifically because, as you said, a world that has no meaning. A question was popping in my mind that was, "How are you not a nihilist?" <laughs> like you know, <laughs> uh, a lot of people fear that all of these questions are is just going to destroy the magic, and you end up in this world that is, you know, just nothing but one big existential crisis. How how do you avoid that yourself? How are you not a nihilist after talking to all of these people who just rip apart all of your views on reality? Well, I suppose because once you uh, face up to the fragility of it. And, and, you know, the possible finite nature, in, in my belief anyway, of, of, of it, it means that this very, very small window that we get is something to savor and use as much as possible. The fact that there is no meaning and by the time that the third generation after me are born and died, I'm forgotten and I'm nothing. It might be quicker than that. Um, that, that is not the important part is while you're alive and the important part is the experience here and now. And so rather than go, there is, in fact, I found, what was it? I just made a note actually of a Bertrand Russell quote, which I think I put in a book, which is one of those really, you know, it's like Sartre, you know, we're born for no reason. We live suffering and we die because we're idiots <laughs> or whatever, you know, one of those. And you go, yeah, that, 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 that's all fine. But I might as well, now I'm here, you might as well make the most of it. It's like, you know, it's like going to the beach and going, well, what's the point in doing anything while we're at the beach? We're going to have to leave eventually. Well, what? that's a terrible day at the beach, isn't it? Yeah. If you just sit there and go, well, we'll be leaving at six, so I might as well do nothing now. Build a sandcastle, go paddling. Well, what's the point? We won't be here forever. That's the point. You're only yeah. at the beach for an afternoon. 
Has has these conversations and delving into the subject matter? I mean, I think you've had twenty plus seasons now of Infinite Monkey Cage and hundreds of guests, and you're doing Cosmic Shambles. Like, what kind of worldview have you arrived at? Has all of this coalesced into a worldview for you, or is this actually kind of? I think you're a fan. I think in Robert Anton Wilson's words, he says, "I'm perpetually agnostic," and I've adopted yeah. that in my life. Are you now just perpetually agnostic or has something formed through all these conversations? I, I think I'm perpetually agnostic, but I think from that position has increased to me the importance of like, I mean, this is probably a roundabout way of, of, of answering this. But for instance, in the books that I write and the shows that I do, there was a point, for instance, in stand up where jokes weren't enough. Just doing a show that people enjoyed. That's a good thing. But. I wanted people to take something with them afterwards. I wanted them to, uh, you know, if I'm doing a show which has some stuff about mental health, to find out afterwards that someone has found out that what they thought was unique to them, some tormenting voice, is actually something that many people share. Whether it's sometimes even issues of things like, you know, I, I did one show where uh, I, I, I'll warn the listeners now, you know, I'm, I'm going to briefly mention suicide, and it's... Um, and I, I ended up writing some stuff about suicide because I met this uh, woman when I was touring Australia. Where was I? I was in Adelaide. And she's really great. She was an ex-teacher and very interesting. And then we were out having a cup of tea and she said, um, you should do some stand-up about suicide. And I thought, I know there's going to be more to this. than." And she said, because my daughter killed herself. And I sometimes think if she could have just talked a bit, it, not in the highfalutin places, not in that thing that I now must go to the psychiatric ward. If she could have mentioned something to her friends, if it was something that was just out there. And so I wrote this whole kind of piece, and some of it is in, in my previous book about suicide ideation and other things. And I want, you know, when I, if I talk about something like that in the show, I, it, it's, it's not just for effect. It's not to kind of do anything shocking. It really is the hope that someone maybe one night hears something and goes, you know what? Ah, I didn't know. I didn't know that these ideas were shared by so many other people and other people were going through this. And maybe I can bring this up with someone. And that, so that in terms of my kind of ideology or whatever it is, with everything that I do, I, again, going back to that happiness thing, I hope that people can take something useful away. I know not everyone will. Some people won't enjoy the show. Some people won't enjoy the book. You know, some people, this is a rubbish. This is, you know, but I, my intention now is it has to be more than just this moment it has to be more than you know again because of the fragility and i think the more that i've read and the more that i've tried to start to understand how some people can be led to terrible damaging beliefs yeah you know, I, I met a guy who had been brought up in a cult it was a religious a christian religious cult and uh he told me that it was fast he hid when he was a teenager under his mattress we all know the things of kids when they you know certainly of the, of the kind of my generation that they might have something that was in some way pornographic hidden under their mattress you know when they were teenagers he had a book by the philosopher ac grayling because those kind of books were banned you were not allowed to read those books and so at night he would surreptitiously when everyone's asleep read another little essay about philosophy and uh Eventually he went, hang on a minute, this world that I'm living in, this is not the way things should be. This is, this cult is, is, and, uh, and eventually he managed to escape from it. And he's never spoken to any of his family again, and his family will not speak to him. 
And to think that that level of ideological thinking of his family has meant that they've cut off all ties from someone who they loved and who loved them. You know, those kind of things, all of those things, you know, I can keep my universal agnosticism and at no point lose what I, you know, my intention. Yeah. Do you, this is a bit of a segue, but do you think that, I don't know why I thought of this, but do you think that tech and science have become incentivized in such i guess negative or perverse ways um are so commercialized now that they're kind of trapping people in 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 these worldviews that keep them from wanting to explore these concepts and and maybe even makes us a bit wary of of where tech and science are going like so much of r d that takes place now in the tech and science field is not for things like solving world hunger or the energy crisis it's more about like a filter for your phone to maybe make you feel uncomfortable about your weight or how your skin looks and i think you know specifically i i think alan moore's jerusalem is right back here and i know you're a fan as well but he has the quote in the mindscape of alan moore which is maybe one of my favorite documentaries ever but he says like their magic box of television and by their magic words and jingles, they can cause everyone in the country to have the same banal thoughts at exactly the same moment. And I just feel like that's so much of what is now happening with all of the development. And so little is about the, the wander and the, the, the progress for humanity. Do you feel that as well at all? I, I, th I think, you know, in terms of the kind of, you know, the, 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 the capitalist nature of the, of the way that, that, a lot of our societies are structured this is the thing that you constantly have to try and fight against and constantly have to and and it's always been an issue with science of course because so many scientists have previously been employed in things like you know arms manufacture and arms development it's so often you know the, the things and, and in fact one of the organizations which i one of the many ones that i burnt the bridges of was you know doing an event for a science magazine where i found out that the main sponsor was an arms manufacturer and even to mention that on stage apparently everyone was furious and it was like well again to lack that honesty Let's at least, you know, this is a place of science and this is what we should be talking about. Why is this money going there? Why, you know, this is, um, so I think it's it's not an issue of science and tech. It well, it is, but it's, it's an even bigger issue than that. It's, it's an issue of um, the, the structure of a society which is entirely led by an idea of, when we, we use, you know, growth, this idea of growth that we're, we're obsessed by, that the GDP must keep growing, that this must keep growing. And, and what gets lost always is a sense of contentment, a sense of happiness, a sense of, you know, we have so many different societies uh, where, you know, people who do not have, I mean, all of the, the trinkets that I'm surrounded by. And it doesn't necessarily give me satisfaction, or have, but but they're part of the way that that's built. The, you know that every single final bit of technology we buy is going to be the last jigsaw piece that we need. And then once we buy that, we find out there's a TV that's even smaller, and we find out that we can look at Google while wearing our glasses. Actually, on our glasses, you know, all of those things. And I, and it does. I, I I agree. There's a lot of of to me utterly pointless fripperies going on. And that's because I think we got to a certain point in the 50s where there was that level of technology that should have made people happier. And, th and then it turned out it didn't. You know, the whole suburbs, the whole Valium thing, the whole all of that stuff, which is... I mean, it's like when I look at self-driving cars is the thing that I can never get my head around. I cannot get my head around. And I'm sure someone listening to this will explain to me why they will be useful. 
but I don't see how they will be useful because anything that removes another sense of our purpose, this is what you see, you know, any, any people listening to this, you know, who have an elderly relative who, who perhaps now is not able to get around. So you will know that one of the worst things about being old and not being able to travel or, or not just old, anyone who loses their purpose, anyone who feels I'm just being looked after. We have to always find purposes. And yet we have this weird mix of things going on where we have all this technology that's meant to make life easier. And yet we do, you know, people still feel as angry now, even though they're not drying their clothes with a mangle. You know, people still feel as angry now, even if they're putting their dishes in a dishwasher. People still feel all of those things. And, and it's that failure to step back and go, let me just see what I've got now. It's, it's, it's that thing, you know, it's, it's the failure to taste the food that you're eating. It's your failure to suddenly stop and go, wow, I've just realized that my grandfather had to boil a load of pans and take them into a tin bath. And I just turn the tap and go, oh, bloody hell, it's taken ages for that hot water to, to come out. It's taken about seven seconds. You know, you go into a tunnel with your mobile phone and you go, oh, bloody phone doesn't work in the middle of a tunnel. You know, and you go, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, the rest of it. All the, so you don't spend your time going, this is amazing. This is what it's that thing, which is what Schopenhauer talked about that um, the, the problem of living. Of course, he had a lot of problems with living. He didn't. Yeah. But lived a luxury life as well and had his lovely poodles and had fine wines and it wasn't a happy man and he said you know you always have to remember that if you look at uh, uh you know two animals one eating the other uh the one that is being eaten is going through far more pain than the amount of joy the eater is experiencing you know and that's the bit which is every now and again of trying to go now i need to work out why i should be experiencing joy now now i need to pull back from this situation and think this is quite amazing what is happening to me and the possibilities I have and the fact that when I sometimes speak to people in their 80s and 90s they will tell me about the number of children they played with who died when they were growing yeah. up and <laughs> and I think we've now reached my generation are the first generation that I think are now just far enough away from the regular visits to the graveyard to mm. to bury the young and other things such as that to believe this has always been the way in the same way with climate change that we believe that there will always be some way that we can beat it and it really doesn't matter and let's deal with it another week while we still make money while we still have the oil and the gas and the coal yeah my guess would be that you don't understand self-driving cars because you're british and not american because if you could cut down a little bit of time on the commute you would be more inclined to support them i think <laughs> oh so if you were so, so it would cut down on time on the commute is that do you think that'll happen I mean, honestly, yeah. I mean, all jokes aside, yeah, I think that's one of the goals, right? Is if you have a bunch of cars that can communicate, then they can streamline traffic. And instead of queuing for a mile at a stoplight, you have a bunch of, you know, a, 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 a dance, a ballet of cars just streamlined moving through the world. And hopefully that, that, that cuts it down from half an hour. Well, right. Yeah. <laughs> You know, hopefully, but we don't have a good public transit in America, so that's something that we need. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Do you, do you think with technology in particular, are you worried about the direction we're going there? Because you mentioned the arms dealer aspect before, and, you know, I think of Oppenheimer after the nuclear test and saying, now I am become death destroyer of worlds. And, you know, technology and science are extremely powerful tools, and in a lot of ways, they're becoming more ubiquitous or more accessible by the average person. Are you concerned about the direction with the, we're going with these things? Do you think we need more caution? I, I think there's always a problem when we don't understand the technology we, we're using, which is a very recent thing. 
really, you know, until, you know, even in the 1950s with the kind of, you know, mentioning those washing machines and stuff like that, you know, most people's mum and dad had a toolbox and if the thing went wrong, they'd take the back off and they'd know how to mend it. We now, as, as like with our communication that we're having now and what we're using, uh, if something goes wrong, uh, we know that if we try and open it and work out what it is, then the guarantee is void and no other warranty is over and done with. We're not allowed to. So I think the fact that these things become magical uh, and enclosed is, is a problem. Once we have no understanding of the technology that we're using, I think that can lead to bad places because, again, it's, it's another sense of distance between ourselves and the world that we're interacting with it's another stage further away that we are from that so so that that does make me think that you know it, once everything is sealed and is just inside whatever is going on whatever someone will give you a lecture about how it's all down to quantum mechanics and you know wave particle duality whatever it is, but we still won't really know how to repair it how to mend it and what to do with it and i think that distance is uh yeah it can, can kind of has a, has a certain dehumanizing effect mm. Are you speaking of dehumanizing? What do you think about things like uploading consciousness? You know, you've talked to a lot of scientists, a lot of technologists, I'm sure, as well. Um, do you like the idea of the cyborg uh, technology future? I don't know because I mean, I I think consciousness we're still so far away from understanding i think when i read most things about i mean i love anil seth's new book being you i don't know if you've, you've read it. it's a it's a really good book he's, he's he's one of the uh the first time i met him we were doing an infinite monkey cage and it was about simulation theory and both him and me have no time for it at all because to me simulation theory is it's fun in the context of a philip k dick novel it has no pragmatic use whatsoever it's it's a fun game for philosophers uh and that that that's kind of it so what when I, and, and Anil's book about consciousness is so so these things don't really cross my mind apart from when I read interesting pieces of science fiction you know and I love reading some of the ways that you know people like Ursula K. Le Guin play with reality and I and I think that that is a real joy you know if you read something like one of the short books like Lathe of Heaven you know it's fantastic um so I, I find all of these things fascinating. I find all of those different possible ideas of exactly what level of reality we're experiencing. I find those fascinating. The cyborg consciousness thing, is, it's like when people talk about how much we need to be worried about artificial intelligence. We don't really. We need to be worried about the human beings that are screwing up the, the way that they're creating. Art. It's still going to be a human problem. Uh, that is created it's not going to be to me anyway I think you know that that kind of how like image which often comes back to people you know from 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 Kubrick I, I don't think is is the main issue I think yet again it will be a case of us playing with things without really understanding them and also the fact that very often the people who are able to finance these things do not come from uh, uh, you know a, a, a place of, uh, of charity uh, or kindness <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and a lot of the stuff you mentioned, Ursula Le Guin, who I love, and Lathe of Heaven, which is, she's from the city that I live in, and the, that book's set here, and I love that book. Um, and it makes me think of imagination and storytelling, and specifically towards the end of your book, you do draw attention to these things. And I'm wondering what you think the role of science fiction, of storytelling, of imagination is in terms of how we steer technology and science, and, and I guess really the future of the species. 
Oh, well, I think with science fiction, I think is so important in terms of, I know it's a hack thing to say, but the fact that, you know, so much science fiction is a thought experiment. So much of it, you know, good science fiction is, you know, bad science fiction is kind of that thing where you've just taken the storytelling devices of Westerns and stuff like that. And you've then just added laser guns, good science fiction. And Ursula Le Guin is such a great example and such a deep thinker, such a fascinating person. And I think all of those different viewpoints or, or Stanislaw Lem, you know, I, I just read the Futurological Congress, which I'd not read before uh those those I, I think it's a very very important part i think science fiction it's beginning now to be respected perhaps hopefully it will never be too respected because that's one of the great things about it as well that's i think where you get its incredible invention um but I, th I think it plays a very very important you know so many of the scientists i know when they were kids it was science fiction that got, got them into science and and those experiments of thought are you know those here is another possibility. Let us imagine this. You know when you look at the work of obviously someone like William Gibson and a lot of people who came out you know around that time as well. These are all really important adventures in us understanding humanity. They, I mean that's why I love those novels so much. Mm -hmm. So you know we've talked a lot about your book so far, and I know we're coming up a bit on time here. So I know you also have some events coming up. I think you have the nine lessons for spring. Um, and I'm sure you have other things going on. So I want to give you a chance before we go here. Are there some events or other things that you'd like to tell people about before we yeah, yeah, transition we out of here? Um, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm doing a couple, we, we do a thing called Nine Lessons of Carols for Curious People, which was uh, that these are the last two events that we had to postpone because of uh, the spike in COVID in London. So over the Easter weekend, Easter Saturday, Easter Sunday in London at King's Place, uh, we're doing, and they're kind of just a night of music and comedy and science and experiments and stuff like that. And then I start um, a US tour with brian cox we're doing a uh when we start in washington on the 22nd of april and uh, and then we go across america for for a couple of months but yeah it's just kind of uh yeah i loved it and, and cosmic shambles as well which is where i put all the kind of a lot of the interviews that i do with scientists i mean that's the great thing again about podcasting as you know which is it is it gives you so many different places where you can go i want to make another thing and i want to make another thing and i want and i know that sometimes it means you make so many things that not many people listen to some of them but the mere fact they exist, I love sometimes stumbling across a podcast I've known nothing about. And there's only been 12 other listeners so far, but you hear a little conversation, which is giving you another world, which is, you know, that's again, the beauty of novels and the beauty of great fiction. You know, you mentioned, you know, Alan Moore's Jerusalem, and it really is a spell, you know, it really does work as the fact you read that book. And then it doesn't matter how many times you've been to Northampton, when you go back to Northampton, it is full of ghosts, it is full of all that he has populated it with and uh and and that to me is you know and robert anton wilson the way that he played around with with you know kind of language and, and, and you know some of it is so you know sometimes his kind of taking of idea you know like quantum psychology is kind of a couple of extra leaps there but it's still it, again it's thought experiments and it's a fun game and i think that's you know that's what i really wanted to get across in the book as well which is a lot of science is people are having playing games and having fun and in that journey they also discover incredible things you know and but the fun bit is the bit that always gets left out in the education you know we just see that you know whiteboard of abstract numbers and symbols and you don't get the adventure of the daydream which eventually led to those abstract numbers and symbols yeah i think kind of in the same way you mentioned you know reading jerusalem makes you walk through a city seeing things in different light i think one of the beauties of your book and the stuff that you do is it makes you walk through the world <clears throat> you know and see the the majesty of of what's around you like i always 
use as an example, if you look at a tree, you know, it's very easy to look at it and just say, oh, that's a piece of wood. But in reality, it's like there is a complex system of information being exchanged through the soil for thousands of miles and it's converting poison in the air into oxygen so that we can exist. And it's like there's so much more behind the scene that if you know about it, it brings the ghost, so to speak, alive uh, in your life. Well, it's true. You're right. It, it adds just more and more layers. It adds more stories all yeah. the time. I mean, I, I did a thing with uh, Suzanne Simard. Do you know Suzanne Simard? Who, I don't know. She's the person who came up with the Wood Wide Web. Oh, you know, the yes. Basic, all of this communication. And uh, and it blows your mind. And you kind of want to go, hang on a minute. Yeah, because you, you, you get to a point where you almost can't help but believe that some of the communication between trees, it's really hard to imagine it without adding a layer of consciousness and your brain immediately starts to hang on a minute. You can't go there. And, and, and sitting with her and, you know, how she came up with that idea and then how the experiment she set out. And so, you know, you look at a wood and then you can, it's almost like you can start to hear it's all psychosomatic, but it's still yeah. fun. You can start to hear as if, if are just coming out of the soil and the mulch beneath you, yeah, they're all, all that little. Oh, something's coming over there. Ah, oh, it's a bit poisonous. And it's just, you know, and I love all that stuff because it just, and it doesn't matter, you know. As I mentioned, the book. Sometimes it is just stories. Sometimes it is just adding a layer of myth. But I think there is a kind of a different form of almost what I call evidence-based myth which is you can read Suzanne Simard, you can read about the Wood Wide Web, you can start to hear those kind of voices. And you know, there's a level of it, which is not real science and is not equation based or anything like that. It's just a little story. And as long as that story doesn't start to tell you to go and, you know, kind of kill all the trees or kill all the people, whatever it might be, then that adding that layer of myth is great. And I mean, it was interesting. I, I was doing a thing with a psychotherapist the other day, Veronica O'Keen. And she was talking about the fact that it's something David Chalmers is writing about now, that just because something's in like he's writing about the fact that just because something is in virtual reality doesn't mean that it's not a real experience. And Veronica O'Keen was talking about uh, a woman who'd gone through kind of postpartum uh, psychosis after her child was born. And she believed her child had been swapped for another child and her child had been buried. And so eventually she, she, she was fine again. But she said, every time I walk past the grave that I used to believe was the grave where my child had been placed i still had that real memory and veronica says that's the thing the memory is still real even though the reality is a fiction and i think again when you start dealing with that different level of knowing that everything is going on in the mind that sometimes there are experiences which can't merely be brushed aside because they are not physical they are they still have again that reality inside the mind and, and all of those challenges all of those different ways of, of creating the coping mechanisms of understanding that of, of understanding the fragility of your reality and your perception of it you know as you said it, there's existential anxiety there um but at the same time i think what that existential anxiety also again creates a new richness within it mm. Also, I had such a high level of existential anxiety before I even really got interested in science, to be honest. I was, I was already at peak anxiety by then. Yeah, I think I think we needed the science to ground us. It was a <laughs> it was a way to keep us grounded. And I mean, like you said, you know, you, I, I know you didn't mean to undermine the value of stories at all there. But, you know, by saying it's just stories, it's like humanity is maybe just mm. stories. You know, the thing that probably separates us from animals, if we really want to draw a line, is maybe laughter and stories. You know, those are the yeah. two things that seem to be fundamental. So, and if you have a story, it really changes the way you perceive reality. 
and that therefore becomes who you are. So, I mean, these stories feel of crucial importance, I would say. Oh yeah, the stories. It's 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 that you know. It's again, it's the thing that gets missed out so often in the education system. Mm. All these teachers who want to teach the stories and they're not allowed to. And, and the laughter thing is such an interesting thing because I was thinking about that today because I realised you know why it's why does the human species have comedy in so many different forms, and it's consciousness as far as I I it's because it goes back to that thing which is we are something that we project on the outside and we have our separate world on the inside. So a bonobo doesn't really need comedy because during moments of tension, bonobos just have sex with each other. Uh, <laughs> they're fine, you know? So, so yeah. it's like kind of, so they don't have that secret world, but we have a secret world. And then when you watch a really good stand-up, when you see some really good comedy, you are very often hearing that stand-up say the thoughts that other people had kept inside. So, I, you know, again, as you said, laughter is directly linked to the fact that we do seem to have, compared to other species from our very limited research so far, we do have a very complex inner life, which is yeah. not to say that crows may not have that too. It reminds me one of my favorite books in the world is a uh, stranger in a strange land by Heinlein and his, uh, his, his scene where Smith laughs and that's the moment he feels human. And it's because he watches a monkey who gets hit by a piece of shit and then throws it at another monkey and he laughs and he's like, all oh, sometimes the world is just pain and like hypocrisy and all you can do is laugh at it. And that's when he discovers that he's a human and it's just yeah, so perfect. Yeah, it's so perfect. <laughs> um, Speaking of, before we go, you, you mentioned the Brian Cox tour, I think in America, is that going to be just uh, the two of you doing kind of whatever, or is that going to be a continuation of the Infinite Monkey Cage? No, it will be, it's, it's, a, it's a, this one's all about black holes predominantly. Mm. Uh, and it's the two of us. And basically it's the, it's the normal thing, which is Brian will go on for about 25 minutes until the audience feel in pain. Uh, and then I'll come on. And uh, this one's the most specific one we've done yet in terms of tour. There's kind of a little bit of poetry in there as well. Uh, huge screens as well. I mean, the graphics are, we've done a few warm up gigs. And they're the best graphics we've ever had. Like it just starts off with this kind of, I won't even say actually, it's, it's an incredible, there's a 10 minute piece at the beginning with this incredible piece of music. And I love watching the audience's faces because, you know, that's the nice thing about doing a show regularly is you can stop looking at what's going on, on the stage and you can just look through. And I always, and it's like the lovely thing that when I see Brian speaking, I can just go, ah, right. He has now lost connection with what's going on. And she's really, yeah, that she's struggling. She's definitely got it. She's fine. She's sailing with this stuff. And I love watching yep. all that stuff and reacting to it. So yeah, it's it's kind of a it's 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 a it's a really big it's I think it's the biggest theatrical show we've done. And we're taking it around the world. So it's yeah, two and a half months in in the US and Canada, and then the UK, and then Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, and then then we'll go around uh, the rest of Europe and stuff. All right, Robin. Well, if you have no more closing thoughts, we'll leave it there. And uh, just thank you for your time. Oh, don't even take the risk of me with closing thoughts because that we that would be the second hour. The, this is what I always love about having crazy. conversations with people like you is, again, there's new questions and there's new, you know, I'm going to go straight back to writing after this. And now already I know there's some new stuff because that, that's what I think is kind of, I, I'm, I'm a little bit on the kind of ADHD side. And, and what I do is I just, I try and pour as many things into my head as possible. And then I shake the head up and then I see what happens when I open the top of it and stuff kind of and and so it was great having a conversation with you thank you so much